how could I, you know, how could I facilitate that? You know, how can I stand there and say, yeah, just take a couple of minutes to chill and then we'll get on with the do now. And you know, if you don't want to do the do now, now you can do the do now later. You don't have to do the do now. You can don't do the do now. I'm like, I'm not. Stand up routine. This is good. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my other career. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to this special shorter than usual episode of the Rethinking Education podcast featuring my recent conversation with two previous guests, Tom Sherrington and Adam Boxer. I'll explain how this conversation came about in a moment, but first I'd like to share something with you. Regular listeners to the show may be aware that rather delightfully, a global online community has emerged alongside this podcast, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. There are now approaching 300 people in this community from about 30 different countries at last count, and it's a wonderful thing indeed. It's a place where people come to share ideas, to respond to issues raised in the podcast or elsewhere, to learn from one another and to generally plot and scheme and make wonderful things happen. And I heartily recommend that you join us. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested. When you join the Mighty Network, and it's free to do so by the way, you have to answer the question, why did you join this community? I think it's basically to make sure that you aren't a bot which means I've just given the game away if there are any robots listening to this. Bring it on, robots. The Turing test is on. People give a range of reasons for joining, not all to do with the podcast, and the responses are often fascinating and occasionally quite moving. Anyway, I would like to share with you, if I may, one of the reasons someone gave recently when they joined the community. So here it is. When asked, why did you join this community, this person wrote... A 25-year search for the galvanizing and utterly nourishing content of the Rethinking Education podcast, antidotal and truly empowering, having worked only in challenging schools and having always mediated and soothed the effects of the machine, I need to know where and how change is possible. These podcasts continue to clear a pathway in my mind and for the first time I feel alive with curiosity and courage and the end by quoting William Blake, to see a world in a grain of sand, a heaven in a wild flower, close quote. So that's rather lovely, isn't it? And rather a coincidence, strangely, because we've been discussing Blake on the Mighty Network this week, as you will soon see if you decide to join us. Doing this podcast is a labour of love. It's incredibly time-consuming, but it's also hugely rewarding, and I'm learning absolutely loads through doing it. I've mentioned before that I would do this podcast even if no one else listened. When else do you get the chance to pin down fascinating people for up to three hours and question them about who they are and why they think what they think? It's an absolute gift. But the fact that these conversations seem to be resonating with other people is really wonderful and it's obviously hugely rewarding to receive feedback like this. And resonating they are... There have now been over 16,000 downloads of this podcast in the first six months, and the numbers just go up and up each month, which is incredible, especially when you consider that these podcasts are around the two to three hour mark. So firstly, I would like to say a massive thank you to everybody listening to this 
and to everyone who has already joined the Mighty Network or who has tweeted their support of the show or shared it in some other way. And secondly, I wonder whether I might ask you a favour, or really to ask whether you might humour me in taking part in a kind of mini-experiment. So far, I haven't ever asked listeners to do anything, to like or subscribe or comment or to give us a five-star rating or whatever. Partly, that's because I don't think I've ever responded to such a request when listening to anyone else's podcast. But everyone seems to think it's important to do these things, and so I thought I might as well give it a go. I get pretty accurate stats on the growth of the podcast. The overall downloads are currently going up by about 1,200 a month, and so I'm interested to see whether this request gives us a bump in the figures. In particular, I'm told it really helps when people rate a podcast on iTunes, because then the algorithms do their work and start pushing it into people's feeds. I just checked, and so far, we've only had one rating on iTunes, a five-star rating by someone called Sklates, who wrote, Fascinating. I really enjoy these long-form conversations. I've learnt so much from each interviewee. So if you're listening, Sklates, thanks for that. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. So can I please ask each and every one of you listening to this right now to go to the show notes where you will find a link to the Rethinking Education podcast on iTunes. Click that link, give us a five-star rating, and maybe even write a nice short comment. And if there's any way of providing a rating on whichever other podcast platform you're using, or to leave comments or feedback, please do so on there also. And next month, I'll report back on whether it makes any difference to the listening figures, or indeed (laughs) on whether anybody even responded to my request. Okay, and so to today's episode, featuring my conversation with Tom Sherrington and Adam Boxer. As with so many things these days, this episode came about because of a Twitter exchange I was involved in. A few weeks ago, I was in a fascinating thread that was initially about Guy Claxton's new book, The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back, which you may have noticed was the focus of a recent episode called Guy Claxton on Neo-Traditional Myths, which I highly recommend in case you haven't heard it yet. In this Twitter thread, Adam Boxer revealed that he hadn't been able to get through the episode with Guy Claxton. He wrote, I gave it a good go, I promise. Made it to about 40 minutes. Close quote. In an earlier email exchange, Guy had revealed to me that he had similarly found himself unable or unwilling to listen to Adam's episode. And so I responded, to be fair, that's further than he got with your podcast, before adding, why can't all my guests just play nicely together? I'm still profoundly curious as to why this is, by the way. Anyway, Adam replied with something that I found really interesting. He wrote, As you know, I accept that there are many prog methods that can be excellent. The discussion, though, is about how easy it is to implement those, and whilst I have seen trad done bad, that's the vanishing minority of trad lessons that I've seen, brackets, and I've seen quite a few now, close brackets. Compare that to prog ones, There's a vanishing minority of prog lessons I've seen where I've thought, yeah, that was ace. Close quote. This made me think of a blog that Tom Sherrington wrote a couple of years ago entitled The Groovy Prog Isn't the Issue, It's the Bad Trad, in which he observed that the majority of lessons where he has seen a teacher struggling, it's not because they're doing progressive stuff that's ineffective or badly done, but because they're finding it hard to do the trad stuff well explaining and questioning and providing feedback and so on. Which isn't quite the opposite of what Adam said, but it struck me that at the very least there's an interesting conversation to be had here where we could explore this further. 
And so I responded and said, I'd love to have you and Tom on the podcast sometime to see if we can get to the bottom of this. To my delight, and slightly to my surprise, they both agreed to take time out of their busy schedules to humour me, and, well, here we are. Before we dive in, I'd like to share something with you that I think will help you understand the end of the conversation a bit better. If you're a regular listener to the show, you may be aware that recently I've been involved in a series of campfire conversations. In contrast to the podcast, which generally features very long, pre-planned conversations with individual guests, the campfire conversations are shorter, more spontaneous affairs with diverse groups of people who similarly want to rethink and reform education so as to bring about a more harmonious, less hair-raising state of world affairs. Part of the rationale for campfire conversations is that I've recently become concerned that the majority of the education debate I see on Twitter in books and at conferences, essentially involves teachers talking to other teachers with the odd education researcher thrown in for good measure. But I think it's fair to say that there are many voices missing from the education debate currently, in particular the voices of young people themselves, but also the voices of parents and carers and people working in alternative educational settings, as well as homeschoolers, de-schoolers and unschoolers and the full spectrum of people who have a take on education. So the Campfire Conversations are an attempt to bring more people into this conversation. So far we've done four episodes and we've got two more lined up in the next two weeks before we take a pause for the summer. And these conversations have been every bit as fascinating and surprising as I hoped they would be. Again, there are links to the videos in the show notes and the audio versions are available on this podcast feed. At the end of my conversation with Tom and Adam, I refer to a particular part of a recent campfire conversation, and so I'd like to share that with you before we go to the conversation with Tom and Adam, so that you know what I'm referring to when we get to the end of the conversation. I'll also share with you a clip with a young person from the latest episode of the campfire conversation, which was essentially the opening statement by 16-year-old Yumna Hussein, who is the youth MP for Birmingham, among other things, outlining why she wanted to join Pupil Power, a community of young people who are getting involved in rethinking and reforming and reshaping education to make it better suited to the purpose of preparing young people for life in the 21st century. And there have been a few people from Pupil Power in these campfire conversations so far. First of all, here's the clip of Yumna talking about why she joined Pupil Power. So I've been involved with a lot of activist work um, since I was young, um, since I was like 12, 13, I was writing articles about, um, you know, injustices in the education system and what I thought. And it all boiled down to the fact that there are so many gaps in our traditional mainstream education system that it can't be, it can't simply be reformed again. It has to be thought of in a more imaginative and more radical way. And so teachers and like students need to be working together to um, achieve this. Um, and there's like the pandemic has highlighted so many flaws in the education system already um like for example teachers unions not being listened to students are not being listened to i feel like in a pandemic we asked them to have an elected youth minister um with the government so many times and we just they kept sidelining um young people and i was on a consultation a few you know a few months back with the prime minister's representatives about you know young people education and how they cope with covid um and when i you know was you know, expressing my thoughts on how I feel like young people have been ignored um, and 
you know, being basically treated as economic commodities, basically. Um, and it's all sort of like a business transaction. There's no consultation with young people. It's all about, okay, we're, we're talking, we're talking about young people without actually talking to them and not, and even when we're trying to talk to them, we're not actually listening to what they're saying. We're listening to respond and not listening to actually, you know, create a change with them. And so I feel like the current education system just prioritizes, you know, standardization, conforming um, over creativity and imagination. And then we only perceive ourselves based on what society's expectations of what schooling and what education should be, um, where arts have been, you know, pushed to a side. Um, there's a rapid decline in opportunities for young people, um, a rapid decline in the effective collaboration that can take place. And young people are not being developed as whole individual confident beings who can actually make a difference to the world. Um, and so that was basically my main motivation for any activist work that I'm doing or um, anything that I'm like, you know, public speaking on education system. Um, and that's essentially why I joined People Power. It's quite something that, isn't it? I'm hoping that Yumna will join me later on in the year with some other members of Pupil Power so that we can have a more in-depth conversation on the podcast. And now, here's the clip that I refer to later in this episode, in which Sam, a student at the high school in Dominican Republic, talked about his experience of mainstream school. And this clip also includes a little bit of mine and Kate McAllister's response to Sam's contribution. Yeah, I I think nowadays in the US, um, edu the education system, they almost make classrooms like a recycling bin, where they'll look through it and some of them, like some of them they'll keep, but if they don't like some of them because they learn different, they kind of just throw them in the trash to rot. And that's not at all how the education system should be. And I think um, if they had a little longer, like Grace said, uh, they could do great things. And I, I guess they need to be let off leash. Wow, thank you. That's almost like, too much. That's, That's really uncomfortable in my stomach. Yeah. I'm feeling wow. really emotional at the way that you described children being made to feel about themselves. That's very powerful. Thank you. These campfire conversations are something else, and I hope that you can glimpse in these short clips a powerful rationale for why we need to include the voices of young people in conversations about schooling and education more widely, to listen to their experiences and to take them seriously and to involve them in the conversation about how we can serve them and other young people better. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now and hand over to an earlier version of me speaking with Adam Boxer and Tom Sherrington. I hope you enjoy the show. Tom Sherrington and Adam Boxer, welcome back to the Rethinking Education podcast. Well, great to be back. Um, thank you for inviting me and great to be talking to Adam as well. Absolutely. Same here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So, so um, 
as you know, you've both been on the show before, right? And so we don't need to do all of this long preamble where we spend lots of time getting to know you. I strongly recommend that people, uh, have, if they haven't heard those episodes, go back and listen to them. But this is going to be a shorter conversation than I usually have on the podcast. And I'm not particularly sure where this conversation is going to go. But this originated with a Twitter exchange that I was having with a few people a few weeks ago. And Adam was one of them. Um, and at some point in this in this Twitter conversation, you were talking. We were talking about prog and trad uh, methods. And Adam, you wrote, as you know, I accept that there are many prog methods that can be excellent. The discussion, though, is about how easy it is to implement those. And whilst I have seen trad done bad, that's the vanishing minority of trad lessons that I've seen. And I've seen quite a few now. Compare that to prog ones, there's a vanishing minority of ones that I've seen where I've thought, yeah, that was ace. Close quote. And so this, and I, and I flagged this straight away at the time, and I said, like, this, this sort of called to mind a blog that Tom wrote uh, a couple of years ago now, I think it was 2019, um, and the blog is called The Groovy Prog Isn't the Issue, It's the Bad Trad. And if people haven't seen this blog, it's only quite a short post. I, I'll put a link in the show notes and I recommend that people pause it and just go and have a look at this blog because it's, it's useful to set a bit of background to this conversation. And so it obviously it struck me because it's like Tom, Tom's blog seemed to say the opposite, um, that actually in your experience and you go out into a lot of schools and you see a lot of lessons and you drop into lots of them unannounced. And you were saying that, you know, like on Twitter, lots of people are talking about things like learning styles and brain gym and thinking hats and getting very animated by by these supposedly, you know, widespread, progressive, um, woolly minded teaching methods. But you were saying that in your experience, um, it's more likely that if a lesson hasn't gone well, it's because teachers aren't doing the trad stuff well. They're not questioning. They're not including all the kids. They're not giving good feedback and so on. And you go into much more detail than that in the blog. So I think maybe it would make sense to start with you, Tom, just to sort of just to just to flesh out this this thinking that you have. And first of all, just to check in, like, do you still think this is this still your experience or is your thinking developed in the last couple of years since you wrote this piece? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I, I feel like um, we can all kind of make claims about the proportion of lessons we've seen, but it's it's totally anecdotal, obviously, and it's that's kind of explicit that that's what it is. So I'm literally saying that I think my blog was written in response to um, seeing quite a few conference inputs and kind of the stuff that goes on Twitter where, where people are poking fun at stuff, and that's, you know, the kind of things like the learning styles kebab or you know, the, the learning bicycle or and some of these funny things, and they are quite funny. But, you know, I, I, I was having this conversation with um, John Thompson, who's a friend of mine, and we were sort of laughing, saying, you know, I'd kill to see a sort of learning kebab kind of lesson, you know, because I hardly ever see that stuff. And so the truth is that when I go into schools, I'm not seeing a lot of lessons where I'm thinking, oh, God, this group work's really awful or um, – they're trying to do this sort of student-led thing and it's just not it's just a disaster i am more more than likely to see a teacher trying hard to explain and model and do traditional teaching but finding it difficult um so if we're going to kind of say what's our big issue in terms of how to sort of improve things the groovy prog i mean it's, it's almost like a, a few sort of dodgy 
dodgy meals, you know, like in a, in a balanced diet, you know, you might have a few meals which are absolutely woefully unhealthy, but they're not the real issue. It's the kind of the stuff you do all the time, which is the biggest difference. That's, that was the point I was making. That if you really want to make a, a pitch for how to improve things, kind of the, the groovy learning styles, thinking hat stuff, if, and I'm, 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 I'm throwing a lot of stuff into that label. I just don't see much of it. I have in the past, but it's not. It's just, I just don't see too much of it. So I'm not so worried about it, even if it's there. That's, that's the truth. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, in the, in the blog, you saw, yeah, you, you, you go into it, you list them at the start, which is really helpful because when people are talking about trad and prog stuff, sometimes people dismiss this and say, these aren't even real. They're just like labels and they're unhelpful, but you do sort of go in. And so you, you start to say like, there's the edgy babble end of the prog spectrum, if you like, which is like you say, the learning kebab and the, the, you know, brain gym and the just Google it brigade and so on. And you list a few others. Um, and then you also say into this, pit of derision other things get swept in things like group work projects flipped learning stuff you know um like using ipads and making models of things and so on stuff that is a little bit more sort of commonplace um so it's helpful that you do sort of define that quite clearly um so let's let's come to your your sort of entry point into this adam and like you say tom it might just be that you know when you know <laughs> the sample size of lessons that we've seen is fairly small and therefore this might just be anecdotal and it might just be that you've seen different sets of lessons to Adams but I'd be interested to hear to see if we can sort of resolve this apparent sort of contradiction um so what what was your take on this Adam um I think I think that Tom is right that definitely everything we're going to be talking about now is just anecdotal neither of us have any hard data and to be honest I don't really think we're we're disagreeing all that much as well I think the two the two factors that are the raise are as follows. The first is um, that I am still constantly amazed by some of the people that you know. I'm a full time teacher, right? So I don't get you know I get to observe a lot of lessons in my school and in the schools that I worked in previously, and I get to work. You know, I, I I'm very lucky that people give me the opportunity to do stuff outside of school as well, and I'm constantly amazed by some of the stuff that we that we assume based on twitter doesn't happen anymore and it's still happening and definitely comes from one end of the spectrum not the other so for example i was working with a school recently uh, where the uh, head of science had to plan a unit of work and every unit of work in every subject has to align with a certain core skill that runs across the school so they had to prepare a scheme of work about, you know, something in science that was aligned to, I think it was a periodic table or something, was aligned to the core skill of empathy. And I'm like, I'm like this, that, that does not come from the trad end for sure, right? That's a, you know, general thinking skill, a character disposition-y type across the curriculum idea that, um, that simply has no place in the science classroom. Obviously, like I'm a teacher, I want my students to be empathetic people. But the idea of someone saying plan the periodic table unit in light of empathy is ridiculous. Now, like I, I don't know how many schools nonsense like that is still happening. Uh, my concern is that the schools that I know, the colleagues that I know, the friends that I have, and and I, I honestly like Tom, I, I'm, I'm interested to know what you think about this because presumably people don't invite you into their school unless they know who you are and they've read your book and they've read your blogs, right? 
Yeah, so th- that might be a, a major filter. Yeah, yeah, it just it it, it kind of colours our experience. Um, you know, mine, mine as well for sure. Um, so you know that stuff like that is still going on, and and like that is actively detrimental in a way that you know, sure, you do as we. I think James, I think we spoke about this in our podcast. Yeah, you do hear stories about some schools that take trad too far and feel oppressive and unpleasant places to be. Yeah, sure, I I, I accept that. But I don't think I, I don't know. I don't I don't think you'd ever have or ever have had people from within the trad world, maybe Michael Wilshaw being the exception, who would say that that's actually a good thing. Right? They've always said that that's a bad thing, whereas it is quite, you know, you go back 10 years and building a scheme of work around empathy makes perfect sense. When I trained, I had to make sure there was a social, moral, spiritual and cultural aspect to every single one of my lessons. It was on the lesson plan. And, you know, that wasn't radical. That was normal. Everybody had to do that. It was it was just part and parcel. So, you know, stuff like that comes clearly from one end uh, and and makes things worse. Uh, so, so I think, you know, I think that's worth considering. And again, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how, how commonplace this is. The other thing that I would, that I'd chuck into the ring, uh, and I, I, I've seen, put it like this. I've walked into lessons where, um, oh, we're all science teachers, aren't we? Right. So mm-hmm. I walked into lessons where the teacher is just doing board works. Right. So for the benefit of your other listeners, I don't know if Boardworks exists for anything other than science. It was this thing that ran in Flash um, and is basically PowerPoints and somebody bought them and then they spread everywhere and everyone's got copies of Boardworks. And they're basically like little things and you click the play button and another bit of text comes up and another bit of text and maybe an animation. And, yeah, I've been into lessons where teachers have just been talking through that. Um, and you could characterize that as traditional teaching um, but at the same time no one thought that was actually good practice nobody did that in observations and if someone came to observe them they'd be like oh shit got to try you know quickly do something else because i don't want anyone to see me doing board works it was you know it was a thing that happened but it was never like you know the hebrew word we use is is which is like in the first place it's never the thing that you aim to do it's like oh you know i don't have time to chuck on the board works fine Whereas, whereas the the proggy stuff that I've seen and that I have carried out myself for the first three years of my career was hailed as best practice. When I did the jazzy, groovy group work, and I never I never did VAC because I was fortunate that at my university they they didn't buy into it. Um, but I never did VAC, but I did plenty of group work, did plenty of projects, plenty of discovery, and I never had bad feedback ever. And it was hailed as best practice. And whenever someone said to me, oh, go see X teach, they're brilliant. It was never, I'd never walk in and see them expounding and like doing brilliant teacher-led instruction. Ooh. It was always that stuff. It was always the project, getting the kids wandering around their seat, the active learning stuff. So so I think that whereas what you might characterize as bad trade, the teacher just waffling at the front, Right. Yeah, you could argue that that is trad teaching, but I don't think anyone ever thought that that was like a good thing to be doing. It was just like, yeah, I've got to get through this content or whatever. And 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 yeah, I've I've so so that that would be the thing that that I would kind of push back on. And I I do I one hundred percent think that we are not there yet as as like trad teachers. Like the amount that I'm still learning, you know, I was thinking about this just earlier today, like take, take, take explaining stuff, right? In 
Daisy Christodoulou's book, there is nothing about explaining stuff. In David Didow and uh, Nick Rose's book about psychology for, teacher, teacher, for, for teachers, there is nothing about explaining stuff. We've got a bit about multimedia effect, a bit about dual coding. Yeah, Dan Willingham's got a chapter where he says some stuff about stories and narratives and the four C's, but like there's nothing concrete there. There's the word explanation does not come up in the teacher, any of the teacher training textbooks that I've got. And these are the ones that are on the reading list, recommended. You, there, there are there is in the last few months there have been a bunch of blogs by science teachers talking about how they ex specifically explain certain things, but like we're working in a vacuum where there is no institutional expertise. There's nobody passing down explanations. There's nobody talking about the nuts and bolts. Whereas we have shared language for, and, and I think, by the way, I think so like, like people like Tom are doing this brilliantly where we have shared language around questioning. We have shared language around assessment for learning. We have shared language, um, around the you know retrieval practice and, and all of that stuff. And we don't yet have shared language around explicit around the art of crafting an explanation. Now, why do I why do I single that out as an example? Because we prize explanation, but we don't have a literature on it yet. Because it takes teachers hammering stuff out in the classroom, working in the absence of a theoretical base. You know, I, I'm working on two really, really cool projects at the moment about explanations in science. And like the the, the base doesn't exist. Right. So we're having to make it up on the fly, which means that like by definition, trad teaching isn't there yet because yeah. we, we can't we can't say, oh, you know, we believe in teacher led explanations and stuff, but then also not have an extant literature about it. So so don't get me wrong. Like, I think there is room to go. But I think I think when we get there and when that literature is hammered out, what it, what counts as good tread and what counts as good prog, good tread will trounce every every single time. Um, I, 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 I don't. Just, I, I I think that's probably right. And it's interesting though for me because when I, I'm as a science teacher, there's a high of good explanation. There's a kind of very subject specific aspect to that. So when when you see a math teacher explaining really skillfully to you know some year fives, how I saw a teacher the other day actually doing a really great thing about actually well, they were year year three partition, partitioning numbers and. I thought it was great the way they were getting students to sort of see how 12 could form all these equal shares. And and that was very specific to the subject. And and similarly, you know, the way you explain an idea in science, you've got your analogies and all these other things. But I think I suppose just go back to the original thing about, about this sort of um, seeing sorts of lessons. I, I agree. I mean, I, but what, you know what I feel is over the years is that Teachers are kind of resistant. So even I did do the VAC stuff. I was in a school where we literally had a column on Sims for VAC. It was kind of a oh. makes me cringe. And I remember that. The, Just give me goosebumps. <laughs> the, the assistant head, who's, who's a really good friend of mine, but he was responsible for it. And he said, there seems to be a bit of a freak of data with um, 8.2. I think we call them 8 points or something. He said, because they're all Ks. <laughs> <laughs> I that can't, that, surely that just sort of debunks the whole thing. But anyway, but the truth is, this is the, the bit. I don't think that, I don't think teachers do anything differently because of it. It was like it was there, and we we kind of heard it, and it was in the in the air. But when he actually went into lessons, there wasn't a lot of kind of people using that. And I and I feel there is, and I'm a bit like, oh, I, and I've total sympathy for the poor person who's trying to put empathy into their periodic table <laughs> lesson. But but will they really? Do you know what I mean? It's like I feel like there's a lot of guff that goes into the documentation or that. But when they're actually in front of the class. Probably they're just trying to explain stuff like like we would be. So it kind of 
I feel like it's a bit of the reality check in the lessons is that that stuff might be kind of they're surrounded by it. But teachers are pretty canny about kind of bullshit detecting and not kind of really doing much <laughs> except what they feel works. And that is more like the trad teaching. So I sort of, I've got a couple of examples where I have seen some hor- a horrible experts and envoys lesson, which was a total car crash because none of them were experts. <laughs> so when they envoyed, it, it was just, just mutual recycling of nonsense and i've seen a, ter- a terrible debate like a, almost like a dangerous debate about vaccination where i thought you've just persuaded half your class to be anti-vaxxers <laughs> and <they all> go, <laughs> anti-vax for life it's like they were sort of city versus united and i thought that was pretty poor and i saw a lesson where a, a teacher had made the students make uh, snakes and ladders board games for developing countries where they were talking about snakes or things like going into to debt and, and, and ladders were, you know, foreign aid, foreign investment or something. It was a banal board. And it had taken them about four lessons to make these board games. And um, whereas a simple table of advantages and disadvantages for, you know, developing countries probably would have taken about 15 minutes. It, so I have seen some. It's not like I never see them. It's just that they're kind of, you, you really remember them because they kind of stick out from the general flow. That's my experience of it. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, it's not like I would be saying so. They, and even people who are advocates of the kind of dispositional approach would probably even have seen the same lessons I've saw and thought, "No, this isn't working." It's not like this is a good example of this practice. So, yeah, we. we to be honest with you, there's a bit of lazy kind of uh, headline grabbing when you say it's it's the groovy. It's not the groovy part. It's the bad trend. <laughs> I could have written a much more serious one, which says something like. I think we should probably just focus on, um, you know, pract- you know, traditional teaching and its virtues kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It, there is a bit of that going Okay, on. so there's a bit of clickbait <laughs> going on. Well, you sort of, it's sort of I, I definitely was reacting to someone yeah. snagging off gro- groovy prog. And I, I was thinking, I see, I, however bad it is, it's just such a fringe thing for me that I just don't think I can get too worried about it compared with, how do I help teachers reach into the corners and get everybody thinking and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, and you can see why you would react to that. You definitely see a lot of like learning styles bashing, or at least you did. You know, it seems to be happening less now, but certainly a few years ago, and and maybe it is a bit of a, of a lazy stereotype. And just to pick up on what you were saying about VAC, I also you know was was trained. There was VAK VAK column uh, on every one of our lesson plans when I was training to teach. But but you're right. It was like it was it wasn't taken seriously. It was like retrofitted. So you'd be like you had to sort of tick the column at the end so you plan your lesson you go i'm going to explain stuff at the start that ticks you know audio then the they're going to do a bit of a practical and that's k you know and so it was like it wouldn't shape your thinking and you weren't trying to tailor things for the kinesthetic kids which is somehow it's sort of characterized as though teachers were sort of trying to play to the strengths of of kinesthetic versus audio versus visual kids maybe maybe some teachers tried that but i never certainly did and i never saw it happen um, and there's also a bit of a grey area here because, like, sometimes with traditional stuff, like, like I use this phrase in the in in Fear is the Mind Killer, um, uh, traditional uh, progressive ends through traditional means. Like the stuff that we were doing when we were modelling group work, when we were teaching kids about organisational skills or how to run a project or how to organise their time and resources or whatever it might have been, stuff that's characterised as progressive practice, you know, oracy type stuff. 
you know, we would teach it in really traditional ways. We would, you know, explain it, we would model it, we would give them opportunities to practice it, give them lots of rich feedback and so on. And so there's a sort of, there's a blurry area in between here where there's like, you know, you can have progressive aims and and traditionalist aims. And that's that's something that I'd quite like to come on to. But just just before we before we go there, I'd like to just pull it back to that original question around I mean, I know that like we said, this is anecdotal, but I wonder if we can get a handle on like what like just just your opinion. What is your sense of like what proportion of traditionalist teaching do you see compared to progressivist teaching do you do you see that's sort of out in the world and this could be a comment an amalgam of what you see in your school what you've seen in other schools what you see on twitter and if possible can you compare that to like what was going on 10 years ago and another way of phrasing this question is like to what extent is twitter a bubble because <laughs> on twitter things have really moved in the last 10 years from like you know uh, in a much more traditionalist direction is that reflected in what's happening in classrooms have we gone from like there was lots of you know em- experts and envoys and marketplace lessons and all of that stuff happening 10 years ago and now it's all like you know people doing you know exposition from the front or not and and then there's a second question to that, which is like the proportion of this, which is to go back to that original point about good and bad, you know, like, so the first question is, what would you say is the ratio gives a percentage of like prog to trad? And secondly, within each of those, what percent of it is like good? <laughs> James, I don't really want to be a douchebag about anything, but ten years ago I'd barely started university, so uh, <laughs> I can't I can't really give you an accurate reading of what things were like back in the head, okay. heady right. days Com- of the coalition right. government. Compare it to when you were like the the fly in the flag yeah. for discovery learning as an early career yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah. So so and 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 that's that's actually a good point because it does tie back to what Tom was saying before, where where it, it sounds like neither of you were true believers in VEC, but I was a true believer in discovery and inquiry learning, learning 100%. And it colored everything I did in every single lesson. I genuinely believed that if a student discovered or thought of something for themselves, then it formed a more lasting memory than if I had told it to them. So, so yes, even though I wasn't doing crazy group work every lesson, and I did do it frequently, but it wasn't every lesson, um, that, that most certainly colored every single one of my lessons. So, so, you know, uh, there, there is that too. I think when, for i think when it's weird because my current school uh, the tartridge academy which is a remarkable place tom i think you vis- did you say you visited once um i'm not sure if i have actually but what what, what so no it's, not recently it's, it's, anyway we're an absolutely really interesting school. And like I said in the podcast with James last time, our maths department, um, the majority of our maths department, well, we only have results now from two, a cohort two years ago. Uh, but the majority of the maths department had only started teaching these kids, you know, at the beginning of year 10. Uh, and their progress eight for that year group was seventh highest in the country. Right. So that seventh highest, Michaela, Danny Quinn's first year group, our top of that progress eight cohort. Um, and then two, three, four, five, and six are the various Tawadil schools, uh, Islamic girls' schools. There's a couple of ultra-Orthodox Jewish girls' schools there. And number seven is the Totteridge Academy. They, they, the teachers in the maths department teach via explicit instruction. 
So they teach explicitly, they have very carefully uh, modeled worked examples, et cetera, et cetera. And then all student work is, well, not all student work, because there's plenty of independent practice as well, but there is a very, very large component of group work uh, in the students. And all the students sit in pods and they all work together. Um, and that's how they solve problems. Uh, and it's, you know, so, so we, like I said last time, like, like I'm in a position now where I work in a school where there is this like beautiful mix of like really carefully crafted Rosenshine and Lamov work. And then also the math department leading the way with group work that I personally in the science department do not do yet because I actually don't think I'm skilled enough to, to execute what they do. Maybe one day I will be, but I'm not right now. Um, certainly in the schools that I used to work in, the, uh, and I used to work in two very successful schools uh, between them having, you know, 350 staff or whatever. There was nobody who taught the way that I taught. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I, why I moved on from both of them was because people were it was like talking a different language. People were giving me feedback on stuff that I couldn't give a shit about. People were saying, well, what, you know, why didn't you get the kids to put their thumbs up or thumbs down 20 minutes into the lesson? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, because I don't care whether or not they think they understand. Like, it's just not relevant to my teaching in the slide. You know, someone wants, you know, I, you know, the feedback that I was getting was stuff like, you know, stuff like that. You know, where, where was the differentiation? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, you know, I, I remember when, you know, when I was in leadership in my last school and I joined one of the deputy heads for an observation of one of my colleagues and she had done this like crazy whiz bang lesson where she had like three different worksheets for three different groups of kids. And she had, uh, you know, bringing the kids up to the front to model explanations to some chemical reaction or whatever. And like, I was discussing with the deputy head before we gave her feedback. And, um, and, and I, I said, I literally, I said to the deputy, I, I said, you, you know, I, I feel really uncomfortable because like I'm giving this teacher feedback. I know it's not their usual lesson. I know they've spent six or seven hours preparing it. And like, I don't want them to have done that because I don't actually think it's any better than their normal lessons. And the deputy head, she just straight out said to me like, but you know, I do the same for my observations. Like I try and put, pull out all the stops and try and show my best self. And I'm like, uh, and, and like the, the point is that was normal. I was the one who wasn't normal. I was the one who didn't who who didn't prepare for lesson observations. I was the one who was just like when people are saying to me, "Well, how do you do AFL?" I'm like, "I've taught these kids for six months. I ask seventy to eighty questions every single lesson. Like, I don't need to do your nonsense AFL. Like, I know what they know. I know what they don't know." I was the one who was trying really hard to think about how I was explaining stuff. I was the one who was moving away from pre-prepared PowerPoint slides. I was the one who was trying to think about well, what's actually the best way for my students to practice this. I was the one who was trying to figure out how to do retrieval practice in a school where nobody else was doing a do now at the start of the lesson now it's much 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 more common i think but but then it was like it, it was it was crazy land uh and it was you know and 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 that you know and the school was getting good results fine right but for me i wanted to do something different and and i wasn't getting that and and i wasn't getting any helpful feedback and i was getting better but like so slowly because you know i was only getting better because i was reading like tom's blog and i was reading stuff from you know doug lamov and and uh, edu twitter 1.0 bloggers who don't blog so much anymore people like you know david blogs every so often but carl hendrick doesn't blog so much anymore alex quigley doesn't blog so much anymore joe facer doesn't blog so much anymore daisy christodoulou she blogs but it's all on the year two reading or some stuff that i don't care about like you know but these people who were so you know greg ashman still blogs you know more or less every hour but you know the, <laughs> the, but but the you know that i was 
I was getting better, but like slowly. And it was in the absence of anyone who was talking my language. I don't know. You know, and I do still talk to people who who say things like that to me, that they're still that they're working in a vacuum. But it does seem like more and more people are now at the place where I guess I was like three years ago. Um, yeah, I, I think that's I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I definitely think it's a, a change. I mean, I go to schools where they tell me you know, that the things like do nows and retrieval practice and all those sorts of things are the vernacular everyone's talking about how to do it and and i think there's an i i think people over worry about it going too rigid because i think sometimes people there's a phase there's like a, an implementation phase of it's inevitable that people go for a kind of fairly standard approach to get an idea rolling and then it kind of softens and becomes a bit more organic and i, I think that's natural but yeah i mean i'd say 10 years ago i, I think putting percentages on it is quite hard <laughs> I mean, but, but it's only like there's four hundred and fifty thousand teachers. You can have a you can have a range. I, I would I would say um, it. I I would say it's less than I don't know few fewer than one in ten lessons. Where it's like, I'm going to go to a school. I mean, I, I go to schools all the time. I was in a school on Wednesday. I saw nine different lessons. This is a primary school, uh, and of course, one of them was the early years. So I, I saw foundation stage, and of course, they're all playing and stuff. It's just pretty amazing to me. But then even after that, you know, the way that the kids are being taught phonics and writing and everything, I'd say they're all fairly traditional lessons crafted around teacher instruction and modelling practice. Um, and one of the teachers said, you know, maybe, you know, they used to, because of COVID, they'd introduced rows, and maybe they were looking forward to going back into groups because the kids would be better at talking to each other. And I was saying, I don't think that's the issue. It's not, it's not the way they're facing. It's the fact that you need to get them to structure the talk and get them to talk in a disciplined way. It's not about... They're looking at each other. So that, that was a teacher who had a sort of slightly group-focused instincts but still wasn't using that. So I could spend a whole day in a school and see no progressive-style lessons at all uh, and still feel like the, the agenda is good and the kids are enjoying it and the teachers are working hard and it's, that's the, the key thing. Whereas I, th I think probably 10 years ago, yeah, I did some work visiting schools and in my own school you would see um, more um group activities but I, I have to say my my view of that is slightly skewed because 10 years ago i was working in a grammar school where i, I say it that i said it then i still say it now it, some of the best lessons i've ever seen were in that school because the teacher's expectations are so high it just blew my mind it every day i just thought oh my god they make these kids work so hard but i did see some very good very good um group activities because the students had the skills. So I some, saw some amazing um, investigative maths um, lessons. And as a science teacher, you could do some really good lessons with, say, circuits, where you would say, um, you know, uh, you show them a few basic things, but students in all age groups could design circuits and test them and say, we gather around and say, like, what's happening here? And they would tell you, and this isn't working and that's not working, but if I try this, that's what comes on, and, and we start making predictions. And they could do that. They could organise it. You literally say, um, okay, guys, equipment's at the back. Start making some circuits, and I'll come around and see what you're doing. <laughs> and that, that was – they were up for that. But, you, you know, I, you try that in another school, and the kids are just sort of – it's a total car crash. They're, they're trying to line cells up so they can put as many volts as possible <laughs> through little Dylan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's twitching uh, on the floor. You know? Exactly. But, but those students had the knowledge base. So they, they, they were like, they're almost like they succeeded through the earlier education, so they're ready for that. Yeah, so it's expertise I, reversal, isn't it? Totally, yeah. So it, 
I, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, so I, I, we're not playing your percentage of the game, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too hard to get a to get. I know it's a it's a it's a killer question, and it's too hard to answer. I agree. I think that we could probably all all agree that there's been a shift. It's there's been a shift in in the Twitter bubble, but there's also been a shift in real schools. And you can see it in the in the sheer volume of like Rosenshines that have, that have been sold, and in the the popularity of very traditionalist um, uh, books uh, that have been really taken to heart by the profession. It definitely seems to be shifting in that direction. All right, so so there's there's another question here, which is oh god, I, for some reason I thought that we could nail this in about half an hour, <laughs> and it just like I'm, my mind is spinning off in so many different directions. Um, there's a question about purpose here, isn't there? Like so so like what? Let, let's accept that it's it's possible to do progressive group work, you know, whatever te- like methods really badly, and it's also possible to do it really well and to be in the top ten schools in the country with your maths results. And it's also possible to do trad badly, and it's also to do possible to do trad really well. Um, so in that case, why would a teacher or a department say choose to go down a sort of a group work route, or why would they go? Why would they choose to go down a more sort of uh, like you know standard sort of exposition, lots of practice, lots of feedback type route where there isn't so much group work? Say, um, so in, in in other words, there's another way of saying that, which is like. If if good prog can get you into the top ten, you know, schools in the country, and good trad uh, can uh, as well. A very hybrid like, model. Hybrid model. Let's be clear. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's call it a hybrid. Still a lot of Lamov and Rosenshine. Yeah. 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 Okay. But but is there anything else? Because that's being measured in math results, right? That's literally just like you know how many of the, how many questions do they get Ooh. right on the exam? But is there anything else that those kids are getting in Totteridge through through that group work through interacting that they're not getting elsewhere? Things that aren't showing up on the exam, and therefore you know like there's a question about so there's a question about purpose here because your 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 groovy prog bad trad blog tom it sort of it concludes by saying like what we really need to do is focus on getting the trad stuff right because that's where the gains can be made the most we don't need to, to worry about learning styles let's just focus on you know like making sure that all young kids all young people are included and that they're all being pushed on and so on right um and so well I, I, I say that because i mean I, I just feel like i mean it breaks my heart i go to schools where i see kids who um I mean, you know, it's a classic thing. So I went into a lesson recently where the teacher was doing a recap on a previous unit and it was, um, they, they were doing Tudors and they were moving into Elizabethan and then, and, and, and this kid, <laughs> the kid was doing this retrieval practice activity and he said, oh, Henry, they had to do something about like Henry VIII and he said, oh yeah, he was the one that had loads of wives and killed them all. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, and um, it was like the teacher was just sort of, you know, it, he, he's not able to access the story. He doesn't get the narrative. He was in the same class as those of other kids who who understood it. And so I'm talking about the difference between Catholics and Protestants and the church and the state. And this, and he was one of several children who were just at the, the wrong end of that, barely grasping any of the meaning of it. And you know, to me, he, you, those kids are vulnerable. They fall through the net all the time. They end up with I mean, less. They, they, their vocabulary is worse. Their grasp of of, of time and history and, and when things happen is worse. Uh, that they need to be taught really carefully. You know, I, I see the kids in FE. This kind of makes me sad. Who can't add fractions? They can't. They don't know the difference between, say, a quarter and a third, in any kind of real physical sense. They've been taught 
I would say, poorly their entire life because they have such poor schema for these basic concepts. And they could learn it, but they haven't. And I, I don't, in a way, I feel like they've been taught anything which is not helping them learn that in a very careful, planned way is wrong. And so it's some of the group work stuff is is kind of icing on the cake. It's like when you've got the children to the point where they can do things legitimately, then yeah, let's start seeing what we can do with it. And that's but if they're not ready, it's it's not right. It, it's not just something nice for them to do. It's it's not the right priority. I don't think they they have social dynamics in every lesson anyway. Um, it's not like even even when you go to quite strict trad schools. You know, the social dynamics are sometimes the best ones you ever see, and they're learning all of that as well. It's not like it's some alternative. So I don't really feel like when you have very vulnerable learners, these other sort of progressive ideas are, are the priority for those children. I think it's the opposite, and we have to be very careful. And that's my sense of it. Um, so in terms of, like, are they getting something extra? Well, I think they're getting something extra when they're ready for that to be extra. Otherwise, it's kind of just a distraction from the main, the main, their main needs, but but you could argue that they can. I mean, you're saying that like once the once the basic schema are in place, then it's nice to develop the the group work stuff. But you could argue that that group work, you know, when group work is done well, it helps them to develop those schema when they learn how to talk well productively together. The exploratory talk, for example, you know, there's there's research on this that that kids can learn more effectively through through dialogue, through through thinking together, and that the, the learning is, you know, can be uh, really deep and meaningful when it's done in a dialogic way, which is effective. And, and this links to something that Adam said in our podcast as well, where you said that, and you said it earlier today, in fact, that it's really hard to do what your what your maths department does. You said earlier that you, you said, I am not skilled enough yet to be able to teach in that way. And that's a that's an interesting question to come back to. Like, is it so? It seems that your your argument, Adam, is that it's easier to do trad well, and therefore that's where our focus should be because it's like a utilitarian argument, right? The greatest good for the greatest number. It's easier to scale that up than it is to do the, to to do prog well at scale. Um, but I'm just wondering about that as an argument, because you could argue that, you know, some like old fashioned, you know, way of doing. Uh, I've been trying to think of, an, of a medical example, but I can't really think of one. But like, like, let's just say there's some like really basic way of, you know, doing an operation that gets like sort of bog standard, you know, like reasonable outcomes, but not great. And then there's this new way of doing it, which is harder. And all the surgeons have got to go and train how to do it. But the outcomes are better. The patients get better quicker or they whatever it is. There's other side effects that don't happen. Um, shouldn't we be focusing, even if it is harder, shouldn't we be focusing our efforts on scaling up the stuff, which is, which is, you know, what you might say, like, is results plus, right? It's like you're getting, you're getting results, but they're also getting this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's a good analogy, because um, I never said that the results were of doing it you said if you've got a high-tech surgery thing that's much better gets better outcomes i never i never said that the best prog gets better outcomes than the best tread right i and i don't think that's true um and i think that i think there's a reason that michaela were at the top of that table right so um so yeah i would say that i would say that you also you the problem is you're talking to pragmatist right and and i think something that we've we've all acknowledged throughout this is that 
broadly, teachers are pragmatic. And regardless of which highfalutin educational philosophy you happen to hold in an abstract sense, most teachers most of the time just want their kids to learn stuff. Um, and, you know, will use whichever method they think is best at achieving that end. Um, I would I would postscript a couple of things here. Um, the first postscript is that if you take something like like, like retrieval practice, right, um, which you might consider like a trad technique, right? So Rosenshine one, begin a lesson with a short review. Um, if you do that in a way that I think most teachers are doing that at the moment, I don't think it's helpful. So when you do a do now, like, like I think I, I put this recently on Twitter, there was someone talking about this um, with a do now, that you, if I, in, in chemistry GCSE, I've got my question bank of close to 600 questions. And that include that that excludes everything procedural. So that's stuff like, you know, explain why silicon dioxide does not conduct electricity. It's not stuff like balance this equation or how many moles X, Y, and Z, right? Now, if I wanted to ask each of those questions just twice, I would need more lessons than I have, right? Which means that if I ask random questions at the start of each lesson, I'm not going to cover everything twice i might cover some things three times i might cover you know some things once or not at all but i'm not even going to cover everything twice now across a two-year course that's that's obviously nowhere near sufficient and no retrieval practice literature says that that would ever be enough mm. what that means is that if teachers are just doing a do now and that's the sole method by which they're doing retrieval practice kids at the beginning of every single lesson are systematically getting stuff wrong now that over the long term is going to cause a student to thoroughly dislike and become their learning and become demotivated by it uh, so I think that I think there is a there is a like a re really relevant concern about stuff like that. Uh, another interesting like flip side to to what Tom was saying is that um, I, I so last year again at Tottenham Academy I observed a computer science lesson. Um, we did a we did a we did a hot swap. So heads of department do learning walks twice a half term. We do lots of informal drop-ins. The head of department of computer science is is just one. It, it's him. He's the department. So we did a swap. He came to observe me. I went to observe him. Very nice. He's a very talented teacher. Um, and I was watching these three kids who were working at the coding problem, um, which is totally foreign to me. I do like a tiny little bit of Java, but not like anything serious and these kids are way 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 beyond anything that i can do and i'm watching the three of them work kid a b and c uh, and kid a is getting something wrong and he turns to kid b and he goes he goes what am i getting wrong here and kid b like has a big go at him he's like we've done this before like i'm really disappointed that that you don't know this and he turns to kid c and he says tell him what the issue is and kid c tells kid a what the issue is and then he kid b turns to kid a and says tell me what the issue is which is a Douglas Mob technique. It's no opt out, which is part of our school policy, teaching and learning policy, which is no opt out. Now, what I just saw there was a the, the point of no opt out is accountability, right? It's about making sure that people are accountable for their learning, and if there's stuff they should know, then they should know it, and if they don't, then that is a problem. And uh, essentially, what I've just seen is transfer, because what you know, this mythical beast of transferable skills that we keep talking about, I've just seen it in action because it's something that the teacher does to the kid. And then the kid had just transferred into his own kind of social context. And that's something that that we that we train into the students that if you explain to someone why you're doing no opt out, then 
it becomes obvious that this is what I should do with everybody around me. If you explain to students that, you know, so what they do in the maths department is, and what I think when you were saying that there's research that supports group work, we're talking about Robert Slavin for the most part. Um, and part of what he says very clearly is that there needs to be accountability within the group. And that's what they do in the maths department. If a student in a group, if a, if a group is working together and two students have different answers and one of them is wrong and the other is right, then the teacher will have a go at the kid who got it right for not explaining to the student who got it wrong why they were wrong. That's what accountability looks like. Now, when that transfers outside, that's a beautiful thing. We mentioned Michaela before, like, like in Michaela, there, there is turn and talk. There is, um, you know, the, the project and use your big voice and stuff like that. And that does transfer. And, you know, when you, you know, I, I, I hold no candle for Michaela. I don't work there. I don't want to work there. But like you talk to the kids at lunch and they're doing this family lunch and they're talking to you in a way that they've clearly been trained to like talk to adults uh, in a in a way that is highly articulate and highly sophisticated, like that is transfer right there, and and I think that's something that is that is incredibly powerful to convey. How do you go about doing it? Well, you know, the Michaela way is is fully didactic. It's fully explicit. It's completely teacher led. The te the students are taught exactly what to do. Um, so, you know, at what point do you say, oh, well, actually, that's prog because they're teaching them transferable skills like oracy or whatever. Honestly, like I, like I don't, I don't really care all that much. Um, <laughs> the point is, the point is they've managed it. Uh, and if I see someone come up with a way by which they can manage it, so no opt out is a great way to introduce peer to peer accountability and a culture of accountability amongst the students. Are there other ways to do that? Yeah, maybe. I've not seen them. Right? I don't know. Uh, do, is it likely? Is it easy? No. Could they exist? Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. So I've I've seen these things work um, primarily in um, with older students, and you know, and you know, sometimes you have to, there's so many variables. You've, you've got people who are saying, yeah, but what about drama? What about early years? And 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 with some of these debates, you know, you have to talk about in that context with that age group, that curriculum, what's best, and then we're comparing like for like. And I have seen some amazing A level lessons where. They were totally student-led. One of the most incredible A-level lessons I saw was an English lesson where the students had come in after the Christmas holidays and they'd all read um, Dr. Faustus and they were doing a sort of timeline of good and evil and 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 where various themes. And the teacher was she she was almost like physically ripping up her lesson plans. <laughs> I don't need to teach them this stuff because they know it. They've read it. They they're telling each other the stuff I would have been teaching them, and I don't need to because now we can move on. And that was the expectation was read this and make notes and prepare your sense of this play to the class. And I saw another one, which was a geography lesson where they were doing like the flood defences of Shrewsbury Town. And they had the geology, the geology team, the, the climate team, the, the town planning team, and they had to come up with this sort of flood defence thing. And what they came up with, it, the teacher was blown away because everyone go, well, you should see what they actually planned. It's, it's kind of exactly the same. These are sort of students who are 17 years old, sort of really getting, knowing their stuff. And the teacher was, again, barely saying anything. But then you have this culture of students motivated to, to drive themselves and pushing each other and a kind of peer dynamic there. But if you don't have that, you, you, you can't just sort of hope it comes. And I've seen some terrible examples of students sort of Mis misleading each other through the, the, the classic stuff that, that Graham Nuttall talks about in his book, you know, that I've seen that with my eyes. I've been I've present. done it. I've done yeah. it. Well, you've got, oh my God, they're talking nonsense to each other and it's not good. It's not healthy. Yeah, yeah I think I have to. It, it's, it's risky. Kids leave a lesson knowing less, you know, knowing bad ideas and it's, it's not, it's not all right. So you have to be, very, you have those accountability 
processes. That's what Slavin says, isn't it? That, and this is where the pragmatism comes in. The scaling up is, is, is kind of an, an utopian. It, the reality is most of it isn't going to be scaled up in, a, in an effective way. It's going to be scaled up in a weak way. And then you've got this sort of valorization of group buzz, buzz. And it can be, you've got to be so disciplined about it to get it right. That you think, is it what's a cost benefit analysis? Is it worth worth it to do the kind of dispositional below the line kind of stuff? I, if if you also get pretty good outcomes dispositionally through very much much more secured um, instructional teaching, and and I just think on balance, my my feeling is that you get much more, you're more, much more likely to have rounded students if you if you foreground the instructional traditional teaching, and then through that model you know, all these other things, rather than downplay the instructional teaching and because you want to big up the, the more dispositional side. I think there's a, the risks there are, you know, of scale uh, across the whole school are, are quite significant. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes. Um, so can, can we end with one question? I know that it's getting late and you both, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. There's something that I sort of have a concern about the direction of travel towards a traditional um, like we were saying that this that things are moving in a more traditional direction in the uk uh, at least or in, in england certainly um and this is about the experience of of children so i know that you've not had chance to see it yet but i sent i sent both of you a, a conversation that i had yesterday with nine young people we live streamed it and it's available i'll put a link in the show notes and again, you know, it's a small sample size and all of that. Um, but they were talking about their their experience of school. Um, and there were a range of ages. Some of them were homeschoolers. Some of them uh, were like age 9 to 18. And um, and they were, it was very moving, the, the, like the way that they talked about school. Some of it, I, I was close to tears at one point. And lots of people who were watching it were saying, like, this is almost too much. And they were talking, you know, there was this one one boy who was talking about um, how he said that he sometimes felt like like he, he, he associated the classroom with a recycling bin. And he was like, if you don't fit the mold, he was like, it feels like you're tossed aside like a piece of trash. And he used this language and he, he had, had experienced this. He talked about how he'd had uh, really bad experiences in schools and there's a there's a there's a tension here because teachers are always as you know like we you know we spend most of our time talking with teachers or interacting with them and teachers are always lovely right and <laughs> really really want almost always <laughs> really want the best for their kids right and for all kids and yet we we work within a system that makes at least some kids feel really bad about themselves and we could talk about enforced failure and so on and although you know although this was an anecdotal group of you know like this small group of nine kids that i spoke with yesterday you know there there's data on this you know that like british children are like the unhappiest in the developed world if you look at life satisfaction and actually adults as well i was just looking at british people rank among the most depressed people in the western world i'm not i'm not laying the blame of this uh, traditionalist teaching right but when you talk to kids 
often what they say is that they, they feel like education is something that is done to them, that their voice isn't listened to, that they're not really understood by their teachers, that they're not even consulted in any meaningful sense, that student voice is like, you know, an add-on. And it's like, you can basically sort out the bake sale in the school disco, but we're not really going to take your voice seriously. And this is something that's done to them. And it, and it seems like, you know, think like some of the language that, you know, you're talking about things like no opt-out and, you know, things like just language like do now, you know, so it's like the second, one of the things that I asked at the end of this conversation yesterday was like, what would you like teachers to do differently? Like on Monday, say, and, and nearly all of them said, can you just give the kids just like five minutes at the start of a lesson, just to, just to settle in, just to take a breath, just to like adjust to the new environment and to sort of just to, you know, just to take a pause and just to like chill out. And, and it seems like in the name of efficiency, and that's what the traditionalist model seems to be about. And Doug Lamov talks about efficiency being an underrated word. It seems like lots of the traditionalist stuff is, is being done in the name of efficiency. And it might well do, like, it might well look like it's more efficient. But I just worry about the extent to which it's sort of tightening the screws on you know, the kids not really having a voice and not really being able to have a say in what they're talking about. And it seems to me that, that lots of the, the progressive ideas that we were talking about, about giving kids choice and letting them run projects and doing group work and developing their interpersonal skills is in some sense like well-meaning in that it's like an attempt to, to, to help kids to feel more valued and to, to give them more space to sort of to be rather than to sort of to do, do, do and perform all the time. That's not really a question. It's more of a rant. But let, let's, just, let's just hear with your closing thoughts on this. I, I, I would just say to that is that, you know, everything I always talk about teaching is about a, a balance of, of, of components and it's about the relative weighting of them. And sure, for me, in, in a kind of across a whole series of lessons or certainly across a whole year of a school, there should be opportunities for making choices you know, giving a speech or writing a, a story about yourself and, and bringing yourself into things and sharing your experience of the world. Of course, I'm, and, and the way you do questioning should be about bringing you into the circle of the discussion and making you feel that your that your opinions, your ideas are, are valid. And the way you do cold calling and stuff should feel that you're welcoming people in. So yeah, I, but so, so I, I think that that's an important part. But but what I would say is that where I see that being done well, that's what that's exactly what happens. And I think there is something about students feeling good about school because they know how to do things. And I see that too. And the, the kind of the, 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 the stuff about the five minutes at the start of the lesson, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't entirely buy that. I mean, some children might want that, but they don't always want what's best for them. I, I feel that's a fairly marginal aspect of, the, of most school life. Most happy schools I go in, they might have that time, they might not. They don't mind if they do. And um they just want to learn stuff, and I feel that's where they're happiest when they feel that they're succeeding, and that's the most. That's what I observe more than anything. Okay, what what are your closing thoughts on this, Adam? Well, I mean, like, if I disagree with these kids now, you're going to be like some kind of monster, you know? You're <laughs> saying that they're they're heartbreaking and wrenching your soul in their stories of woe and you know, Victorian coal chimneys and stuff and uh, and now like I'm going to tell them they're wrong <laughs> it makes me some kind of demon look I mean the the, the, the 
the science of learning is is pretty straightforward, right? You know, there, there's bits and pieces that aren't settled and debated and stuff, but but broadly what works for most students is going to work in most places. We know that for pretty much every student in the world, a good bit of explanation, a good bit of modelled modeling guided guided practice followed by independent practice followed by retrieval at a later date is going to help them learn it that is not the case when it comes to motivation it's so much more idiosyncratic it's so much more complicated uh there is no simple way to draw a line from a to b when it comes to motivation and even though tom is dead right students on average do tend to feel better about themselves when they get good at stuff i've taught kids who absolutely smashed their their GCSEs in science. They worked so hard, they got so good at it, and they flipping hated it. They just didn't enjoy it. Yeah. You know, they, they were deeply motivated to succeed. They were deeply motivated to do well, um, but they had no passion for the subject. And you know what? Like, like I'm, I'm not that guy who's going to say, well, I failed then, right? Because the human mind is a human mind, and some people are going to like some things, other people are going to like other things. Some people like things that they're completely rubbish at, right? It just, it happens. You know, so so it's complicated, you know, stuff like stuff, you know, if we were on Twitter, I would say, oh, yes, well, it might be that those kids don't like having a calm settled do now at the beginning of every lesson. But like I teach autistic kids and for them, it's exactly perfect, exactly the right thing to do. Kids need boundaries, need routines, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I'm part part of me is very much te- tempted to think like Tom, um, where you know, a lot of times students don't know what's good for them. And my kids who say to me, yeah, actually, you know what, we'd like a few minutes at the beginning of the lesson just to like like settle in. They spend that time like if you just listen to what they're saying, they spend that time making fun of each other, like you know, and not 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 always in a nice way. And like the kids might be laughing and smiling, but I don't know what's going on in the inside. And like, how could I, you know, how could I facilitate that? You know, how can I stand there and say, yeah, just take a couple of minutes to chill and then we'll get on with the do now. And you know, if you don't want to do the do now, now you can do the do now later. You don't have to do the do now. You can don't do the do now. <laughs> I like, I'm not. Stand up routine. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's my other career. Um, no, like, like, I don't know. I, I don't think, I don't think that's the right approach either. You know, at our school, we do try, um, you know, this, it's funny because, because we do do. Uh, we do do some things which seem to come from that progressive end so like we don't have my school doesn't have a school bell right so in the same way that your great prog the high priests of the prog will have been saying school bells are bad because it's factory whistling blah 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 we don't have one right we know when the lessons finish and teachers are expected to let the students go at the right time um we don't have the bell you know we have um you know my boss told me off when i started i didn't wear a tie my boss told me, he said, he said, I'd like you to wear a tie. I said, oh, why, are you, why, why, why do I need to bloody wear a tie? Nobody wears a tie. He says, we ask the kids to wear a tie. It's the least we can do is to wear a tie. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I use my phone in school as well. We don't let that. He, no, the least we can do. I said, look, you know what? It's a concession that I can make. Right, fine. We do ask the students' opinions on things. You know, it is it is important to us. Stuff like the canteen. Oh, well, the, the food is a good example. We have um, we have a brilliant chef. He's part of a charity. It's called like Chefs for Schools or something. James, you should get our chef on because he's brilliant. Um, it's I think it's it's like it's like a chef, I think it's Chefs for Schools or something. He's he's like a properly trained chef, um, and he just loves food and he loves kids and he loves like giving them healthy food and stuff. And like the kids, the, the first time he turned, the first meals he turned out, I can't eat any because I only eat kosher. It looked beautiful. And my colleagues were saying it's absolutely divine. It's best, you know, they put pictures on Twitter. This stuff is unbelievable, right? And the kids went mental. They were like, like where are my chips? I want my chips back. I want the burgers back. And he's like, no, we're doing quinoa today. And it's like, you know, you know, the, the, well, the kids just want to eat chocolate all day. 
right? That doesn't mean I'm going to let them make that decision. So if the kids march down on the principal's office and say, we want Jake gone, because I actually happen to think now at the moment they've changed their minds. But at the beginning, you know, well, we don't want this food. We want like back to fried fish and chips and stuff. Like, like do I do I really care what they think? You know, they're 13-year-olds they're, they're who aren't good at making those decisions. And to be honest, adults aren't good at making those decisions either, right? The re I'm happy that Jake, you know, if let's say I did eat there, right? I'm happy that the choice would be taken away from me. I'm happy to be able to go and say option A is something healthy, option B is something healthy, and option C, which is burgers, doesn't exist. Right? I'm happy that that decision is taken away from me because adults don't make good decisions either. That's what systems exist for. It's what uh, objective intellectual thought that is predicated on trying to achieve the best for a person uh, is why it exists. Um, so, you know, it's, it is important to kind of abstract yourself a bit from that process where possible uh, i'm really sorry james <laughs> i'm on my last legs over here not at all not at all <laughs> i've been awake for what 18 hours or something i feel like i've just like started something that there was no way we were going to wrap this up in an hour um i want to be respectful of both of your times um this has been a really really interesting conversation and it sort of feels like we've not really like scratched the surface of it there's, there's so there's so much distance left to run in this conversation because it's like this is eternally unresolved question, but it's but it's brilliant that we're that we're talking to each other in this way. Um, I really I really appreciate you both sharing your time with me, and um, please do have a have a listen to that thing, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and to continue this conversation. And I I'm really keen to to bring more young people into this conversation as well, and to hear their thoughts. I'd love to hear the hear the experiences of, of young people who've been taught in different ways, and to see you know what they make of it but that's for another time so thank you both very much uh, i appreciate you both and uh, i will speak again soon absolute pleasure james thanks thank for having you. me on yeah thank you as well i really enjoyed it time is a measure of change we don't have much time time is a measure of change Thank you.